All right. When I asked you the question about um, unsustainable caps, one of the things I was thinking about was public sector wages. So it is my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that despite the belief that Kathleen Wynne was a free spender, that public sector wages have been under serious constraint for a long time in Ontario. And that um, is that... Is that a sustainable situation? And if not, what are the implications of increasing the pay, or what are the implications of not increasing compensation in the public well, sector? That's you know, it's a critical. It's a very pertinent question. Now they're in the era of labor shortage rather than labor surplus, right. and yes, public sector wages in Ontario have been uh, under a lot of pre under they've been held back for a long time. <clears throat> um, well, you know, below the rate of inflation and below the rate of market compensation, if you will. Uh, and we've done a lot of work in this area. We did a public sector compensation note several months ago that looked exactly at that. So, and we also looked at, okay, so what does that mean going forward for the wage bill? When you're in an era of, you know, four and a half percent or six percent inflation, depending when you measure it, five percent, uh, and wages historically have gone up around um, between one point nine and two point seven percent. So, what's going to happen when you have to renegotiate contracts with your unions? And here we are, right? Here we are. So, the first thing that happens, and we see that in our health report quite explicitly, is when people think they can make more money different doing something else, they will. So consequently, we have a significant shortage of nurses and public, and public um, sorry, personal support workers, PSWs, in the healthcare system. At the same time, the government wants to add a lot more hospital beds and long-term care beds, which are going to need... Because you can make as much money working at the 7-Eleven as you can as a personal support worker without the fucking grief, right? I, I that I don't know, but I, but yeah, you're not making huge dollars as a personal support worker. It can be a very rewarding experience uh, and work, but it's also a lot of grief. It's uh, you know mm. having kind of uh, imp indirectly employed someone the very very recently. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We I, all know. And, uh, we all know. It's yeah. very yeah. So anyway, um, it's. Uh, it's any labor market, right? If you can make, I mean, we saw that in the pandemic, a lot of people left the restaurant trade because like, you know what? I had enough of these mm -hmm. hours. I had enough of this stuff. I'm going to go and do something from my home where I'm, you know, in front of a TV, in front of a computer and I'm making as much or more money without the aggravation. So there's certainly that's, that's supply and demand, right? That's how our economy works. So there's certainly that. Um, so there will be pressure. There will be pressure. We also have this thing called Bill 124, where the government introduced it to cap wages of 1%. Sir, can I, say, can I stop you for a second yeah. and get you to explain this? So it's not pressure from, not just at least, pressure from a union that's going to be fighting hard for its workers. It's pressure, you're saying, from the reality that if we don't increase pay, we won't attract these people that we need to do these jobs. So it's not a union pressure thing it's a labor market pressure thing it's a labor market pressure <clears throat> it is that labor market is composed of unions you know wages are one factor uh work and working conditions are a factor working hours are a factor you know you're gonna have people running around on their own time as psws between work and not getting paid for it 
that's a working condition issue. Um, yes. You know, not being able to control your hours as a nurse, if you're required to do X, Y, Z overtime, that's a working conditions issue. Um, so there are many ways to address the problem, you know, in addition to, yeah. to wages, because I'm not going to stand here and say wages are too low or wages are too high. I don't know. But I know one thing. I know that we have record high vacancies in the in the sector. I know that we are going to need more and more of these folks if we continue delivering the program the way we've always delivered it. <clears throat> and something's going to have to give to be able to provide the supply of labor to meet the demand that's required. I'm not going to stick to two drinks a week, no matter what you say to me, doc, <laughs> Dr. Fury. <laughs> I'll just say the reserve comments on, on that, but I, 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 do, I do enjoy a foreign rum. So, um, the but the, the social determinants the social investments have remained largely flat while they've increased exponentially two hundred and thirty percent I think over the last twenty or thirty years here in Canada about the delivery of healthcare but of course it's too late when the diabetic has to come in for surgery you know you need to you, we need to be inventive about how we're approaching the social determinants of health and that requires investment. It requires behavior modification and it, re it, it requires a healthy education campaign uh, to the general populace. But I, th I hope that that doesn't get lost in the overall discussion. I fear it has. Um, but you look at why things haven't worked to date, why all these investments of big buckets of money haven't worked to date. I would argue that that is one of the reasons why it hasn't worked. We haven't invested properly in, in the social determinants of health. So I'm all worked up about something. Let me run it by you. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm all worked up about the fact that Ford, Premier Ford in Ontario has signaled that one of the ways he's going to reform healthcare in this province is to encourage more profit for-profit delivery of healthcare procedures and services. And Prime Minister Trudeau has indicated he really has no problem with that and he sees that as an innovation. I see that as the middle edge of the wedge toward two-tier healthcare. Are you going to be moving in that direction? Uh, no, we won't be. Um, I think um, I, I'm more aligned, I would argue, probably. And I'm never going to, like, don't take this as a criticism of what someone else does in their own jurisdiction. And that's, that's his healthcare system to run, and I respect it fully. Uh, I think the comments of uh, Dr. Bell are, are, um, are quite aligned with where we would like to be here. There are ways to be efficient. Uh, but you can unlock that through non-for-profit uh, mechanisms. And um, there are certainly ways to be more efficient. I can tell you, um, you know, from my own experience as being a surgeon and waiting around for three hours in between cases, you, you, want, you, get, you want to pull your hair out. And I don't have much left. So, you know, it gets, it gets frustrating. Um, there are ways to become more efficient uh, in in decanting some of those from the general tertiary care hospitals into surgical centers. But my approach would be not-for-profit run. And so that enables the access to the efficiency while being responsible with pu the public purse, ensuring that people who paid the tax dollars to have the provision of services are not just uh, making a company more wealthy. You, I mean, you must have, over the years, talked with Trudeau about healthcare from time to time. Were you surprised that he now evinces no uh, opinion about how healthcare is delivered? Um, you know, I was a little surprised by that because that did not seem to be the 
sort of the, the common set of values that we saw coming from this particular liberal government. I mean, liberal governments, as you know, have, have, have waxed and waned over the years on these issues, and they've been not always as consistent, but this one historically has been a bit better on those issues. But, you know, it, it is an issue. It is an issue. And, you know, I was listening to a, a conversation the other day where someone tried to frame the the discussion about public delivery versus private delivery as a so-called ideological or political debate. Um, and, um, and I would say that that's incorrect. I would say that it is actually that that the the commitment to publicly funded healthcare is the ideological and political debate, and it is one that I will wrap myself in with great pride and never back down from. The issue of public delivery, though, was actually a pragmatic conversation because the evidence is there over and over and over in so many different settings that that public delivery is the most efficient and and the most effective um, and the most cost effective uh, in terms of ensuring um, access, quality and sustainability. So um, it doesn't mean that I'm not open to seeing a model. If someone wants to provide a, a different model to me uh, and show me how we get around what has been the sort of very clear uh, demonstration of the the barriers to um, uh, successful private delivery, then, you know, I'm happy to have somebody walk me through that. But, you know, I mean, there's just so many examples. I mean, in, in Alberta here, and you just, you asked about Alberta, and, and it's an interesting case study that not maybe people would know about uh, outside of Alberta, but in the mid 2000s, um, you know, when there was a lot of uh, weight, a, a lot of concern around weight lists around hip and knee surgeries, um, the uh, regional health authority around Edmonton uh, developed a specialized clinic for hip and knee that was publicly delivered. The regional health authority in Calgary developed a specialized clinic for hip and knee that was privately delivered. Um, the wait times were reduced dramatically uh, in Edmonton. So we used some innovative ideas for sure, specialization, still within the public system, still publicly delivered. In Calgary, uh, it ultimately went bankrupt and had to be bailed out by the public system. And, uh, and the wait times were not uh, uh, reduced in any kind of long-term way. So there's an example, you know, so you've got a clear case study of what, what we're like. So yeah, you're incorporating innovative ideas into the public system. Always, always do that. Never let the public system tell you it can't be done that way. Always be innovative, always push for results. But, um, um, you, the public system will always ensure accountability and it won't be looking for the profit margin. And so there is um, an idea on the table as put forward by the Ford government. Um, and I have a strong opinion about this, but I'm prepared to be persuaded by two experts differently. So let me listen to you. Let me hear you on this. The Ford government says that one of the solutions in, uh, in Ontario is an expansion of private delivery of healthcare services. Um, I, um, well, let me just stop before I say anything. Um, advocates say there's already a lot of private delivery in the system, so this won't change anything. Is this a solution? Is this a good idea? So, uh, I, th I think what we're talking about is not just private delivery, but really corporate for profit delivery. So the delivery of publicly funded services by, uh, you know, investor owned 
shareholder driven corporations. And that's the other Danielle. What's a nonprofit private delivery mechanism? So non so there's there are nonprofit private delivery, which would be like your your average hospital. So right. hospitals are not for profit, but they are they they are not run by the government. They have their own boards of directors. I'm talking about Ontario now, where the Ford uh, proposal is is being discussed. Um, yeah. And then you've got your for profit small business, like your family doctor or your local, you know, physiotherapist or whatever, where uh, it's for profit in the sense that the provider is taking home some income at the end of the at the end of the week, but they're not, uh, but they don't have shareholders, um, you know, other than maybe their spouse or something. So, you know, that's a small, a small business model, but this is where we're talking about expansion of, uh, of uh, the delivery of services covered by OHIP into more corporate for profit hands. And, you know, the premier and the minister of health have repeatedly said, you won't pay with your credit card, you pay with your OHIP card. Well, that's a good start. I mean, that's about who pays. That's the the financing of the thing. And I would say, well, even before we move to who delivers, let's just double check and dot the I's and cross the T's on that because we do care that you be able to pay with your OHIP card, not your credit card. And we know that in the corporate for-profit setting, we see more upselling of services. And what I uh, have heard described very aptly as putting the OHIP service behind a paywall. So that means, for example, I won't charge you for your colonoscopy, but when you come to my private colonoscopy clinic, I will charge you for a visit with a dietitian, and you can't get the colonoscopy unless you talk to the dietitian. So that's 300 bucks. You have to pay for the dietitian consult, or I won't charge you for your cataract surgery, but uh, you you uh, you would have to pay for this upgraded lens, you know, uh, in case you're a fighter pilot or something. You need this uh, this super fancy lens, uh, and uh, that's more than the one that OHIP covers. And we just don't offer the OHIP covered lens, so you can't get your cataract done in our in our clinic. So these forms of linking uninsured to insured services, uh, we've seen a lot of them in the, in the corporate for-profit sector and we need to guard against. So so let's just make sure that when we talk about the OHIP card is what pays, that we really mean it and that we're being careful about regulating around all these kinds of bad behaviors. Then we want to talk about, okay, you pay with your OHIP card, who's delivering the service? It's now a corporate for-profit entity. Are we automatically opposed to that? Maybe not. But you and I both want to know that the quality of the service is going to be the same, that the oversight is going to be the same. I want to know if I'm getting my hip replaced at some clinic out, outside of the hospital, that there's going to be the same quality of service provided to me, that I'm no, no more likely to get an infection. I'm no more likely to have a complication. Somebody's going to take just as good care of me in that clinic as they would if I were having my operation in the hospital. Um, and you want to be sure that they are not sucking the nurses and doctors and other healthcare workers out of the hospital to staff those facilities. So what's the plan for making sure that the there is uh, good linkages and planning around human resources across the whole of the sector? Those are the kinds of things that we have to consider if we're seriously going to uh, go down this road. So, Greg, Danielle's taken a, a crack at explaining this to us from her perspective, you presumably studied it with the Romano Commission and a number of other times. I don't understand what, I mean, Danielle partially explained it to me, but what is a business model that allows a for-profit delivery system to both be cheaper and more accessible to the public than a public system is and be profitable just on OHIP money? 
Well, <clears throat> let's start with the proposition that we already have a private delivery system, specifically in Ontario, um, because other provinces, they run acute care services uh, through their uh, health agencies, whether they're regional or provincial. So Ontario is a bit of a special case. But for sure, uh, in every case, um, you can have surgeons gathered together and form a professional association and provide certain select surgical services uh, to residents um, that uh, are accessed through their Medicare cards. And so what I don't understand about this is what is really meant? Danielle spoke to it briefly, but since you can already have private for-profit professional services, what is the premier suggesting? Is he suggesting that he is going to provide government funding to get uh, corporations started and moving into the sector? Or is he going to be uh, offering additional incentives to surgeons to set up these, uh, what I'll call overnight uh, or uh, uh, day surgeries for relatively simple procedures? You'll note that this is never going to be for extremely complicated procedures that involve lengthy stays, Um, but it will be for the more routine type uh, procedures. So what's he suggesting and why isn't the so-called market already being filled by, by professionals under the existing system? What, what has been preventing that from happening? There are private surgical clinics in virtually every province in the country, uh, but they operate strictly under Medicare rules uh, and they don't provide uh, certain um, um, what I will call preferential access privileges to certain uh, individuals. With the but that's exception, probably not very interesting to shoppers, Drug Mart. Uh, no, it's not going to be ever interesting to a shareholder-held corporation. Um, they've got to figure out a way to generate, a, you know, a pretty high rate of return so that their shareholders can take some of that return. Second of all. Uh, they're going to be operating on a much larger scale. And so you need to look at other countries to see what's going on. Uh, for example, the United States um, and a few other countries. But the, the, the main places where you have this corporatization of surgical services tends not to be in countries with universal health coverage. It tends to be in countries with partial coverage, and therefore you have these huge gaps, and they get filled by the, the, by the private what I'll call commercial sector at times. The Saskatchewan government, Danielle, brought in this MRI system where you could, where there's private clinics, and the private clinics are allowed to do a certain number of private paid procedures uh, as long as they do an equivalent number of publicly paid procedures. I had trouble explaining to people in Saskatchewan why that was bad for Medicare and ultimately bad for them. What would you say about that? Well, I think, I mean, a few things. The first is we just want to make sure 
that the person who's getting the next scan is the one who needs it the most. That's the whole premise of our entire healthcare system. If you let go of that premise, everything falls apart. And, uh, and so, you know, uh, when you when you clog up the system with uh, people who are purchasing their scan, who may or may not need the scan, may or you know may not be an appropriate scan, you're you're uh, rarely are you increasing the total volume of uh, of things going on. You're usually just pushing the other ones further down the list. But you know, in Ontario, it, it's even more um, complicated because we have so many scanners. And, you know, we have such a big population. Uh, I, I work in downtown Toronto. There's a, you know, an M, the number of MRI magnets up and down University Avenue alone um, is quite substantial. And most of those scanners are not running 24-7 already. Why? Because we don't have the staff to run them. And so, you know, we can, we can allow a, a, a private uh, clinic to purchase their own MRI and open their doors for business, but it's not going to increase the number of total MRI scans available unless we are taking staff out of the, um, you know, out of some unspecified reservoir uh, yet to be identified. And so uh, one of the biggest concerns that I have with respect to the scanners, because I know that that is on the list of of procedures potentially to be contracted out to, to for profit clinics is aside from the human resources question um, is, are we going to be uh, actually building a system of next available appointment? So um, in let's take downtown Toronto as an example, which a lot of people live in the city of Toronto. Do you really think it matters to anyone whether they get their MRI scan done at Bathurst and Dundas or at College and Bay, you know, three subway stops away? But those two scanners have completely separate waiting lists. And you can, in fact, many people are on both waiting lists. So we actually have no idea how long the true wait time is uh, for an MRI because so many people are on more than one list at once. If we're going to open up to uh, to additional scanners and somehow find the capacity to increase the total total pool of uh, of MRIs to be done, we'd better make sure that there's a single list and that the next patient done wherever they're being done is the one who needs it the most. So the concept of the single common cue, um, that is a, a really important principle. And coming back to what Greg was saying earlier, no federal investment is going to be linked to that level of detail. If we keep shoveling money into a system in which you've got six MRIs and separate six separate waiting lists or 20 orthopedic surgeons and 20 wait lists for hip and knee replacement, uh, you're going to end up with more crazy, uh, which is what we have right now, a completely disjointed system in which it's almost impossible to figure out how to get things for people. If, if we link the investments, federal or otherwise, to a reorganizing of the delivery system into something that is rational and makes sense, then we might actually start to see wait times go down. And and that's an area where the provinces have complete control and jurisdiction and the responsibility. They 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 don't need to wait for a negotiation with the federal government to make these kinds of decisions. They should be making them all the time. Where did any of you run into the limits of the competence of the public service to either provide advice or to execute? Where you felt there might be a need oh, for I some can, outside help. Oh. So I can tell you, well, like, as you know, David, we were, and then I think it got continued under Stephen Harper, we felt, for example, that our votes at the UN were 
insufficiently balanced between the Israel and Palestine, and that in particular we voted fairly consistently with uh, you know the the communities who were in favor of a Palestinian position, uh, and a lot of that had to do with both uh, with our foreign affairs bureaucracy, who were in particular felt that there was a an interest in preserving our ability to talk to those people who voted, etc. But that but that we felt there needed to be a better recognition of Israel at that point as a democracy in the way we voted at the UN. And we could not get the Foreign Service to move. It actually finally took an aggressive effort of kind of going around them, including through the UN uh, ambassador, to get the votes we wanted done. And that's where the, the bureaucratic and political interest of the bureaucracy and ours uh, collided. And at the end of the day, we had to have a very uh, intentional effort to push them aside to get what we wanted done done. Ian or Bran, either one of you got examples of where the public service couldn't deliver what you needed them to deliver? Go ahead, Ian, and then I have a couple. I have one story. I have nothing to add to what Tim said. <laughs> I endorse Tim's views 100%. <laughs> So, so just very quickly, when I was even even younger fellow um, and deputy chief of staff in Saskatchewan, I was put in charge of watching the government for watching the premier's office for two weeks in July. And basically the message I got from my boss was, you're watching the store. Don't do anything. And I said, okay, got it. And um, my friends in the public service uh, understood that the... Um, the responsible adult was on holiday and that the kid was uh, was on the tiller. And so that was when they introduced the decision item saying the airplane that the cabinet has decided they have to buy must be bought this week or the seller is going to sell to somebody else. You have to act immediately or we will lose this opportunity. Holy crap. And so I, I, I authorized it. And uh, when the adults showed back up from their holidays, they were like, you did what? I um, <laughs> airplane for uh, for years after that. And whenever, you know, a window would blow out or there would be problems with the landing gear, the DMs would come and talk to me and say, we'd like to tell you what your plane was like last night. Um, so in Alberta, <laughs> when I got there, um, I got it, started getting memos with red across the top saying, urgent action must happen today. Uh, this will be, all will be lost unless this is decided today. And I thought, okay. I've seen this before. Um, and so I would circle those memos and I would say, resubmit this in three weeks without this on it. And what I discovered was <laughs> then the papers would come back without that on it. Um, because this has been the tactic they were using in the chaos of our predecessors to try to force them to deal with things. And I just told them, you're not, you're not going to do that with me. I've, I've seen this one before. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, of course. Um, I don't think they were expecting us to punch back the way we did. I don't think they were expecting us to uh, support um, the mandates. Um, it, that was their plan, I think, just to to uh, drop the mandates and to bring in the mandates, I mean, and yeah. for us to uh, tear ourselves apart over it, which we internally did, right? Like that was a, a massive issue for us internally. Um, Canadians were overwhelmingly supportive of mandates. 
overwhelmingly supportive of passports, of vaccine passports. Um, and the Liberals knew that. So they 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 called the election on those terms, uh, which we weren't expecting that. Uh, so that was that was a few days of uh, trying to iron out a lot of issues internally. Um, but yeah, what prevented you from managing the COVID issue more effectively, ultimately? The Conservative Party of Canada. Um, our coalition is very diverse and there are member there, there are several caucus members who were threatening to walk out uh the day before the election was called um you know we've got we've in got, retrospect would you let them yes 100 percent. that's why we lost the election that's what that those that last week um when COVID screamed back to the forefront, numbers were rising everywhere in the country. People were getting nervous again. On the Thursday night uh, before the Monday election, Jason Kenney shut down Alberta again. Um, and then the next day, the Globe and Mail had a story about how our candidates refuse to say whether they're vaccinated or not. Yeah. Um, that uh, Now, going back to, sorry, just to go back would I kick them out if I do it? Um, couldn't kick them out. There's no mechanism for us to do this. National Council controls the Conservative Party nominations. Um, there's not. Uh, I remember seeing these comments and these stories about how Aaron should show leadership and throw these people out, do all this sort of thing. He never had the power to do that. Um, and, and even when people say, "Oh, he just doesn't," he still have the power not to sign their papers. I mean, no, ultimately, the leader no, has to sign the nominate no. the papers. That's not the that that rule changed with the with Michael Chong's. Uh, Reform Act change. The official agent of the party has to sign the papers, and it's 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 a legal requirement if the if the council uh, approves it. So there is no the leaders don't sign papers anymore. Um, there there is no mechanism now. Again, we had a number of uh, MPs saying that they'd they'd walk. They didn't, uh, but they still caused. There was a lot of issues internally. And again, when you look at the mandates, I'm not. Um, you know, there's different views on whether they were the right thing to do or what, whatever that is, but Canadian people overwhelmingly supported them. So we were in a real pickle right there. Right. And you can't be on a two front war. You, you can't run against your own party in an election campaign. Right. right. No, we'd so be doomed. we'd be doomed. Yeah. So it was a lot of, uh, a lot of work just to, to keep the coalition together. Um, it's not what maybe. gets them going. It's not what gets them going. I mean, here was the question I was going to ask. We have, we have put in place policies that now mirror Joe Biden's policies, except that Joe Biden talks about this as a jobs plan, as an economic growth and a jobs plan. And we talk about it as a race to net zero plan, as a climate change plan. In my view, he's way closer to the politics of this than we are, uh, than the liberal government is in talking about this effectively. But what is it really? Is this, an, is this a climate change policy that throws off jobs, or is this a jobs policy that has some ancillary benefits for climate change? Um, so, when I was in the lockup yesterday, I think I'm allowed to say this part, I did ask <laughs> if there was any modeling on jobs impacts, and um, I think there's a reason that we're not hearing any estimates of job creation Um Right. Uh, with regards to these incentives, that, that would honestly, that would probably be pretty damn tough to be doing. Right. Given the fact that these are, um, you know, these are investment tax credits. Uh, they uh, the U.S. tax credits are are structured a little differently in the sense that they are actually they are production tax credits. Right. Like you can they are they are subsidy like their their equivalent one on clean electricity as a as a per kilowatt subsidy. Right. Or sort of like incentives and ramp ups. 
Yeah, yeah look, uh, Biden talks about his package deal um, in terms of jobs. They've managed to get a couple of NGOs, uh, you know, credible ones, to put out some estimates of the jobs that have been created as a result. Um but remember as well, like he's also talking about it as it's job creation. It's also it's affordability because this is about lowering the cost of uh, fuel and heating and all the rest of it for homes. This is infrastructure. Um, and because he has also layered on, and again, I come back to this issue of like, it's, it's actually, it's an open economic question as to whether or not this is good policy or not. A whole bunch of other kind of basically social policy kinds of objectives in terms of. Uh, you don't like the union equivalent jobs thing? I no, I'm not saying I don't like, like it. it. I like I'm it. not just saying I don't like it or, or whatever, right? right? Like, so, you know, we've mirrored some of that here in Canada with the new tax credits in the form of, um, you know, figuring out prevailing wages under collective agreements and some apprenticeship, um, uh, you know, annual hours components. And that may all be for the good, but um, in the United States, remember, there's a whole bunch of other stuff as well with regards to... Um, distributive uh, effects, uh, you know, partnerships, uh, local reinvestment, all that kind of thing, um, that some people, some voices are now saying, actually, this is starting to get in the way of actually being able to uh, reap the reap the rewards. Now, um, in Canada, I think they are so far talking about this predominantly as a, uh, you know, this is climate adaptation, this is competition with the, you know, the prevailing winds and uh, and so forth in the United States and the EU. Would this have more political traction if they could talk about it in, in terms of job creation? I don't know, but I think that would be really hard to credibly do, given the structure of how they've chosen to spend the, the so, tax money. So can I just come in on that point, David? Because like what I would say is that what's interesting here, right, is that yes, in, on a number of levels, what you're seeing is the government trying to match the United States or trying to to respond to the instruments that the United States has put on the table. But the reality is the government's been working on a lot of this stuff for months and years before the United States was even talking about carbon capture and storage or, or hydrogen or clean electricity, right? Like the IRA just kind of came out of nowhere um, I mean, it had been obviously there, there'd been a lot of work that had been building in civil society and and through the the 2020 election cycle with Biden. But I mean, it was going nowhere. The build, you know, the the the, the build back better agenda was kind of going nowhere until last summer when when suddenly there was an agreement with Senator Manchin because they needed to get something done before the midterms. Right. But the government had like just just a level set like the CCUS tax credit. Right. Which is a significant part of the government's. Um, uh, overall industrial strategy here that we saw uh, unveiled yesterday is something that was announced in the 2021 federal budget and has been in development since then. The clean investment credits is something that has been announced over the last year and comes from, you know, previous platforms of the Liberal Party. The, we've, 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 we've made investments to, to lower the corporate tax rate for, for clean, um, um, for, for, for clean tech goods. And that was something that had been campaigned on by the Prime Minister in 2019. I think what's interesting out of all of this is that it's given the Prime Minister an opportunity to try to reframe how you stitch all of that together as an economic blueprint, uh, other than these individual kind of initiatives that now actually have some coherence that says, 
we're investing in auto jobs in Southern Ontario. We're exploring critical mineral and, and, and exploration jobs in Northern Ontario, Northern Quebec and Newfoundland. We want to support oil workers and gas workers in, in Alberta and British Columbia and Saskatchewan. We want to support battery production and exploration in that, in those areas. We want to help with hydrogen development, right? It's, you've got a little bit of almost every region's industrial base in a, in a clean growth, decarbonized, um, it, it world. And I just think that's as a, as a shift in how we think about this stuff, that's really interesting. Well, that, but that's just it, isn't it, Tyler? I mean, you outlined various policy actions the government has taken. Um, but I come back to my point and David's point that, um, I mean, in effect, the government is proposing to put an end to the internal combustion engine and, in, in, you know, before the halfway point of this century. It's an audacious plan, you know, a, akin to, to the Apollo project of the 1960s. And yet the government just doesn't seem committed to thinking and talking about it that way. Um, and and it, it's peculiar to me. It strikes me as a huge missed opportunity um, that fails to convey to Canadians uh, how, as you say, how all of these various subsidy programs and tax incentives and so on fit together. Like, David, how many Canadians know right now that it is government policy that by 2035, 100% of all car sales in Canada have to be EVs? Zero. I, I, my, Zero I, people know that. No one knows that. But right. that is the government policy on record. They're proposing, according to their policy, to go from about eight or nine percent today to 100 percent by 2035. That's an audacious plan. And it seems to me at some point the government needs to get out and, and tell that story. I think the, the former environment well, people minister buying a new car, by the way, should know what the resale value is likely to be of their internal combustion engine vehicle. Exactly. Um, the, the previous <laughs> minister was too polarizing, I think, to to be able to deliver that aspirational uh, 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 mission oriented message. I think the current minister seems competent, but a bit technocratic. I, I think at the end of the day, it has to be the prime minister because this is the agenda, as yesterday's budget outlined, that is ultimately going to define um, this government. And and at present, it's a lot of uh, disparate policies, but as as Tyler says, at some point soon, it needs to piece them together and 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 tell a, a charismatic story. Uh, yeah, so there's no spreading issue here, is what you're saying to me, Amanda. This is not something that is going to cascade from bank to bank, unless they did the same practice. But there's no direct flow from. It's not like 2008, where one's going down, That's so right. now another one's going down. There's no, no. there's no connected spreading. Uh, right. And and by the way, the the moats that we've created post 2008 are in place. And the moats were how what's your capital requirement? How much money do you have to keep in your vaults to pay your depositors if they want it? And what they did, uh, what we've all done is decide when an institution is big enough to really require high capital amounts. You know, if they're important enough to the system, we call them si uh, what do we call them? SIFIs, uh, significant. Tell me, what is that, Kevin? Uh, <laughs> Systemically important, systemically important financial institutions. If you're a SIFI, the government really asks you to step up and hold a lot of capital. If you're under, if you're considered small enough, uh, then you weren't. And so the question is, were were the regulators in the right place with Silicon Valley Bank? For most banks, they will be. But banks are losing money. If they had to sell today, if they had to mark to market all of their investments that were based on assumptions that are wrong, they would lose money. And I think that's probably what happened in part to Credit Suisse. They had a similar hole in their balance sheet. And when there's not a lot of trust on the part of your depositors, you have to pay the piper. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, uh, uh, at least in my opinion, like what we're seeing, David, is um, a trigger for everybody to take a closer look at, um, at these financial institutions that have been getting a pass 
for uh, a decade or so because of those low, low interest rates. And Credit Suisse is, is a great example, as Amanda said, has been in trouble for uh, a while now. People have had all kinds of questions about that bank. But because interest rates were really low, everything was sort of moving along at a fairly comfortable uh, pace. There was no real reason to, to panic. Uh, what we've seen going on with, around uh, Silicon Valley Bank um, gave people reason to panic, reason to take a close, closer look. And when that starts to happen, uh, people get nervous, get their money to safer places. Or those that have lots of money in the bank to play with situations like this um, test institutions like Credit Suisse, weaker institutions. You're seeing some of that going on in the U.S. right now with some of these other uh, mid-sized regional banks uh, that look a little bit like Silicon Valley Bank. We've got investors out there, speculators, wondering if they can make a fast buck here, uh, probing the weaknesses of these banks. So you're seeing all, all these things come together, and um, it, uh, it, it makes a lot of people nervous. And, and yeah, if the regulations aren't in place or the, the, the regulators aren't, aren't on the ball, um, you know, it can, it can get uh, contagion-like or start to spread. And so we're seeing a bit of that. But I don't, this, this doesn't, it looks like 2008, but I don't think ultimately it can turn into something like that because of, uh, as Amanda said, because those moats are in place now, because regulators, to their credit, learned a lot of lessons from that episode and seem to have actually put a, a decent uh, regulatory structure in place that uh, should act as something of a firewall um, uh, against the situation, I think. Although I'm dying to know, Kevin, what you, you think about, uh, and David, I don't know if you saw this, but one of the banks that else, the, the other little bank, and it's smaller, so no one had ever heard of it, Signature Bank, that has gone under and was put into state receivership, uh, the, on its board was none other than Barney Frank, uh, who you might recall from <laughs> Dodd the Frank. Dodd Frank, yeah, uh, and and it's it turns out, and I didn't know any of this, Kevin. I was I I, I hate when I feel naive about this stuff, but anyway, I, I was like, what? But he actually, as a director of Signature, lobbied that to lower the threshold of a SIFI, to lower the, you know the, so that so that banks could kind of skate under the radar more, uh, which I just find a bit mind blowing. I got to admit. Yeah, hey, yeah, me too. Um, I, I think those, those moats are probably going to find going to be uh, expanded a bit after this episode. That's most yeah. likely the uh, uh, the regulatory response in Washington. I think um, the uh, systemically important banks, uh, the threshold is is about to get lower. So we're going to have more and more of them. Let me let my Saskatchewan populist rage bloom for just a minute here. Always a good thing. <laughs> Always a good thing. I mean, I I feel badly for people who had $250,000 or more in the Silicon Valley Bank and uh, would have lost their money if the bank had gone under. I feel badly for those people. Nobody needs that twist in their life. But I don't feel as badly for them as I do for people who've never had any money and will never have any money. So why is the government bailing out people who've got hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank? Okay, sit down, Saskatchewan. A couple of things here. <laughs> a couple of things. Uh, we say people. Silicon Valley Bank actually um, uniquely was businesses. Uh, it wasn't a lot of individual. I mean, they, they did have individual depositors, I'm sure, but it, it funded Silicon Valley. So when you say people, we're actually talking about the businesses that are the technologies that will change our world for the better for all of us. Um, so, you know, all the stuff we're sitting here using right now was based on the kinds of depositors that this bank had. And we do want them to keep their money safe and grow it and, and benefit us all. Uh, and then point two, I would say it, taxpayers aren't bailing them out. Other banks are bailing them out. 
Is there a cost to the broader system and consumers? Absolutely. That money comes from somewhere and it comes out of your pocket eventually, but it is the profits of other banks that will go to these bailout programs. So it's not an immediate tax grab uh, in the way that you're kind of thinking about it, I think. Yeah, but what do you say to people who say there's no moral, there's, 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 um, there's nothing but moral hazard now because people are getting used to getting bailed out when things go bad. Um, and yeah, but nobody uh, wants to be bailed out. I mean, I, I, I you know, no, nobody's like, it's okay if my business fails because, uh, you know, there'll be some kind of parachute that, that by the way, doesn't benefit me, my investors, uh, you know, I will still be bankrupt, but depositor, I, I, I don't know. I, I, what I will say, and I think I, actually it was Kevin's paper that did this great uh, article this week. So useful uh, about the number of bank failures in the U S in the last 20 years or so. I think it was 562 is the number that comes to mind. Um, and of course, in Canada, in the last, I think it's 200 years, we've had zero. Uh, so there is a difference in our systems and how we think about a bank. And I think that's interesting. The U.S. tends to think of banks more like small businesses with the, with the attending risks and rewards and, all, you know, and they, small businesses fail all the time. And we don't. We think of our banks like utilities. And again, there are trade-offs in that it's not all good to think of your bank like a utility. But uh, so ours are super safe, and theirs are are um, in many ways less safe. And that's just sort of a it was like a policy split we made at some point in our in our histories. Yeah, Kevin, why doesn't it happen in Canada? Um, because we're risk averse culturally, uh, institutionally now. But um, but yeah, that's 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 the major difference. It's a fundamental difference between. Canada and the U.S. when it comes to when it comes to finance, um, I mean, I don't know. I haven't done the the historical deep dive to understand exactly why that was the case. But as Amanda said, it's 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 absolutely right. We just, we made a decision at some point in our history that we. I mean, I suppose it came in the aftermath of the the, the one sort of significant bank failure in Canada's history. But as Amanda said, that happened like a hundred years ago. Um, before OSFI and the current regulatory structure even existed. So we just decided as a country that we just didn't want to do that. So we decided to um, put a system in place of all sorts of protections to allow some big national banks to, to form up that would be super safe because they'd be spread across the country, uh, lots of a diverse mix of assets. Uh, those banks would be well-regulated uh, joke around Ottawa is that they're quite comfortable being able to put the four or five or six major uh, bank CEOs in a, in a small room and tell them what to do if they ever needed to. That's basically the system we have in place. It's probably ultimately why we never really have to uh, worry mu much about any significant bank failure uh, because that's the kind of relationship that exists. Um, but again, as Amanda alluded to, the trade-off is we don't have that sort of vibrant uh, culture of innovation that they have in the U.S. So if you were to do a well, wait, what, is what does innovation mean? Doesn't it normally mean financial instruments that nobody understands that no, lower ultimately fees. get you in trouble? Uh, lower fees. Yeah, I mean, not exactly, David. I mean, what? so think about Silicon Valley Bank for a second. So yeah, okay, it blew up um, uh, this week after 20 or so years of uh, more than that, actually, since the, since the early 80s of a long run of basically providing finance to those startups in Silicon Valley that are now world beaters, um, you know, giving them capital, giving them the money they needed to get going that they couldn't get from anywhere else. 
because it had a looser, it had an innovative approach to, to financing those kind of companies. It was willing to take a few more risks on startups that didn't have tangible collateral to put on the table. Um, we don't have that kind of uh, entrepreneurial culture in Canada. And one of the reasons we don't have it is it's just too hard for those young companies to get the kind of backing they need to get off the ground. And one of the reasons they don't have it is because we have this risk-averse, concentrated financial system that insists on hard collateral uh, to, to, you know, to, give, to, give, to give out a loan, uh, for example. And obviously, startups don't have hard capital to put up against a loan other than their own personal assets, their house, their car, their um, whatever they might have. So that makes it that much harder for Canadian startups to get going. Um, and, you know, that's one sort of ripple effect um, that will come into Canada to a certain extent. Uh, is that is it, uh, you know, because of Silicon Valley Bank's growth over the last decade, it had reached a point where it was able to come into Canada and other countries um, and start to apply its business strategy, the, the one that it developed in Silicon Valley, to other uh, startup ecosystems. So it was willing to come into a Canada, willing to come into the UK, places in Europe and Asia, and say, yeah, we'll give you a loan. We don't need to, you know, you don't need to put your house up as collateral. Well, we know your business. We understand how, how the uh, how the tech game works. So we'll, we'll give you a loan. Canadian banks traditionally we won't, won't do that. So there's some fear in the Canadian sort of tech scene on the tech scene that we're going to go back to where we were, say, in 2000. It was just going to be a real struggle to get these banks to to put any money on the table to help these countries grow or help these companies grow. Uh, a few of the bigger banks have, you know, were spurred along by Silicon Valley Bank. A little competition got them uh, got them interested in what was going on there. So they've built up some innovation banking business. Uh, you know, you, you you see this week some concern about whether the, those banks will sort of carry on down the path, or they might uh, revert back to back to form and uh, make it a little more difficult for these companies to to get some loans to uh, to build their companies. There, there are other ways this shows up too. I would say, you know, obviously the lending ecosystem to startups is one that, you know, the vast majority of us can stay blissfully ignorant about, but it's probably the most important thing to our economic benefit, right? That people go out and risk themselves and capital and build things and make our world better. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, we get to sit in our offices and, uh, and talk about it. But where, to me, the culture of Canadian banks, and I, I do think, like, I think this is actually one of those times where you, could, you should put your hand up and say, hey, Canadians, don't get overly smug that we don't have bank failures here. Um, because on the one hand, there is that you can look at the whole regulatory environment and the, how small it is and the relationship with government and say, yes, that's the strength. But like everything else in life, uh, the strength and the weakness are two sides of the same coin. And the weakness. Does it really still matter, David? I mean, you know, uh, there's been so much money spent everywhere in the last number of years. Um, and and uh, the amounts that the federal government spends, I mean, to go back to the kinds of dollars we were throwing around in the 90s just seems staggering um, what they spend on things. And, uh, you know, back in the 90s, the Clinton administration was trying to eliminate the U.S. deficit. That's not even a conversation in the United States anymore. So it just feels like the rules are all different than they were in 1995. Uh, no, the rules in 95 were that what we had to do was really bear down and we did. And it was, it was painful. 
it was yeah. painful uh, what we had to do in 95, and we sure don't want to uh, go through that again. And so the, the main job, as I see it, is to avoid uh, having that sort of uh, problem, facing that sort of problem again. So what, what was true, though, uh, from, uh, from uh, the, the last 20 years and, and um, after 1996 uh, is that we had interest rates that were, uh, were relatively low, in fact, very low, um, and when interest rates uh, are less than the rate of growth um, of your economy, then past that does not eat up more and more uh, of your revenues every year. And so we've had we since '97 when when rates finally came down because we took all those dramatic actions. Uh, to deal with with the fiscal uh, problem, uh, rates came down and stayed down. Um, we've we've had a period when, in fact, governments could run uh, could run uh, deficits without that compounding year after year. That period, I think, has I, I would argue, and many econ economists would argue has really come to an end for the four reasons that I just went through at the start. We've got, we've got an aging society, which means we're going to have a smaller fraction of our population that is actually engaged in the labor force. We have to deal with climate change, which is going to slow down, uh, slow down uh, economic growth, for, certainly for a period of the next 20 years. Uh, we've got to deal with digitalization, which means it's huge restructuring, both of our industrial economy and our our labor skills. And finally, uh, the world is just uh, no longer the same as it was uh, in uh, 1990, uh, following uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall. We were in a world where the trade was expanding. Uh, we had a downward pressure on prices uh, because of, of what was coming out of uh, out of China in particular, um, and we had uh, we had uh, an expanding global trade order rather than the contracting world trade order, uh, which we now face and maybe face not just in clubs or diamonds, but in no Trump. 